Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have John Epperson. Hello, everybody. Luke Stutters. Hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And this week, we're going to dive into boot camps and talk about how those fit into our Ruby experience. And I'm kind of curious to get started. What, what's been your experience with boot camps? I mean, have you worked with boot campers? Have you participated in the boot camp one way or another? Yeah, any of that. Yeah, I've worked with quite a few junior developers who've come straight off US and to a lesser extent Canadian boot camps up in Vancouver, kind of a west, west side of things. But I've never attended or taught a programming boot camp. Gotcha. How about you, John? I'm in a pretty similar-ish area. I've never attended or taught. I was invited to teach one time or whatever, which I think they give to like everybody in town or whatever, but I didn't, didn't end up doing it. I was too busy. And then I right. just never looked at it again. I've worked with people from boot camps, and obviously being involved in Charlotte Devs, I talk with a number of people on a fairly regular basis about their opinions regarding it and and i do work closely with a couple people that are former and current teachers of some boot camps here in town gotcha do you wish you were better known in the programming community want to make a difference by speaking at conferences writing books or contributing to open source let me help i'm starting a program to help developers move up in their careers using proven techniques and by starting a podcast in order to advance right now i'm only scheduling calls to see where you're at where you want to go, and how we can get you there. There's no sales pitch involved. You can schedule the call at devchat.tv slash next level. Yeah, it's funny because I guess we're all coming at this as outsiders. I have lectured at a couple of boot camps, but it, you know, it was like come in for an hour and talk about how to find a job or come in for an hour and talk about the community or come in and talk about whatever you want because you do Ruby Rogues kind of thing, right? And so I've done that and I have some friends who have gone through boot camps. I've coached a bunch of people who have gone through boot camps, you know, and then in a less formal capacity, mentored a number of people who have gone through the boot camps as well. And then, yeah, I mean, as far as alternatives go, I've also coached and mentored a whole bunch of people who have four-year degrees. I've coached and mentored people who are self-taught. And anyway, I think there are some real trade-offs here, but, but I'm a little curious. Okay, so now that we're talking about people that we know who have gone through boot camps, yeah, what, what's kind of your read on boot camps? I'm, I'm curious, even if you don't have like direct experience with people, like how I'm curious about your opinion just because some of it's going to be informed with by your interactions in the community. Yeah, so I'll take this one first. I think the boot camps are spotty. I think they're hit or miss. That's kind of like the sort of conclusion that I'm at right now because from my perspective, I, I haven't seen a pattern of you know, people coming out of boot camps just automatically being bad. I haven't seen a pattern of them just automatically being good. Uh, For me, the common thread that I see from people that are like sort of successful is just, it has more to do with them than it does the boot camp. And they, the people that I have felt like have been successful through boot camps also have kind of expressed that kind of a thing. Like they were frustrated at their boot camp. They felt like they did a bunch of work to bootstrap their career. And then the people that have struggled out of bootcamp have also expressed the exact same frustration. Hey, I feel like my bootcamp oversold how well I was going to do and I or like they're not giving me as much support as I wanted. 
but I definitely have seen like that uh-huh. sort of negative opinion from both crowds. Not every single person that I've met is negative on boot camps, but I would definitely say that, I don't know, 60 plus percent of them, which is, it could just be, yeah. I mean, it's, t- it's close enough to sort of like that mid-level that I can't say, well, boot camps just are terrible. Don't ever do them. Like clearly they're helping some people work, right. but there does seem to be something that's not quite right about the system, if that makes some sense. That is the promise of the boot camp, isn't it? That's the the fantasy. That's what they're selling. The idea that you can kind of come out of your current career stacking shelves at Walmart, do the boot camp and be transformed and employed in the vibrant world of software development. Yeah, that's pretty much what they're promising is true. They have these boot camps for people that want to like lose weight and stuff too, right? And and I feel like the uh-huh. same the same success rate seems to apply across the board there or whatever. I'm, has, I'm desperately in need of such a boot camp. You know, think. that's a really apt analogy, though, because I have a few neighbors and friends who have gone to those two, right? And so they go for two, three, four weeks. And then they come out of the boot camp and they go right back to doing what they were doing before, right? And so it doesn't actually... Like, they, they learned in their head what they needed to know, but it didn't give them any, you know, didn't give them any practical experience actually, you know, maintaining or losing more weight because when they were at the boot camp they taught them nutrition and then fed them in the cafeteria right and so they weren't actually okay let's all go down to the grocery store here's your shopping list here's how we're going to cook this right and get them used to doing those things day in and day out and making it a doable thing and what i found is that with a lot of the boot camps and this varies a lot from boot camp to boot camp is that some of the boot camps will go in and they will teach you all about how to write Ruby or React or whatever, right? And so when you graduate, you've got all of this technical knowledge and you know, you've built some apps and you've got a little bit of experience there. But when it comes right down to it, you don't actually have some of the other practical skills that you need to get a job and actually be worth hiring. And so what I find is that when I say I've coached people who went through boot camps, usually what winds up happening is they'll wind up spending several hundred or a couple thousand dollars with me over the course of a few months so that I can help them learn the, those other skills, learn how to interview with and talk to people, learn how to, you know, right? So I'm, I'm essentially taking them to the grocery store and showing them how to build their shopping list and then how to demonstrate to employers that they actually can do the job, right? And so that's, that's one issue that I've definitely seen. The other issue that I've seen is that, or I guess on the flip side, is that there are a few boot camps. And I don't know for sure if like Flatiron School in New York, they used to do really well at this, but I know that they've been purchased and they've changed some things with their management. So I don't know if this is still the case, but the guy that ran it, Avi, he was really, really well connected with companies in New York. And so he could actually step out and help graduates get the jobs, right? And so he could get people in front of employers and he could he could talk to the employers and get feedback on their product so that they'd go back in and they'd say, look, you, you have to know this, right? So maybe it's pair programming or maybe there's some agile development training they get or maybe they get a little more practical knowledge on like a real world app 
or they go contribute to open source or things like that, right? And so he would get the feedback there. And then when you came out of the boot camp, they knew that you had done some of that stuff. And so the relationship worked both ways with the boot camp, but most boot camps don't seem to do that. And a lot of the boot camps don't teach you any of the skills that you need to actually find the job. Yeah, they're just interested in, hey, look, I built a couple of apps in the boot camp and I'm done. And so, yeah, it, it kind it's kind of hit or miss. The other thing I will throw out is that it seems like some of the boot camps too, what tends to happen is they'll have a handful of people. So they'll have a cohort of 20 people in the boot camp and like five of them will get a job right out of, right out of the gate, right? And then another 10 of them are going to have to struggle for six months to a year. And the other five are just going to go back to working at Walmart. And the reason for that has more to do with the boot camper than it does to do with the the boot camp. In other words, the boot camp's giving them what they need to succeed, but it's those top five folks. And it's not because they're the top five folks. It's because they're they're at the boot camp for 12 hours a day and then they go home and they code some more or they go out to the users groups or they, you know, they do the other things that they, they need to be doing that nobody's telling the other boot campers to do that is making the difference. And so they wind up having the connections and the skills to get themselves a job when they're done. So that's long-winded, but that's kind of been my experience. I definitely would say that locally, for example, uh, some of our boot camps are a little bit different. Whereas you note, you noted that, you know, you'd seen where, hey, the boot camps are giving you the skills and they're not doing so hot, right, on maybe the soft skills. For example, some of the boot camps in my area are really, really good at those soft skills and super weak, right, on right. some of the technical skills. I thought it I thought it interesting that we hopped into this topic, Luke, because right before we were talking about it, you were talking about people having the skill, right, to read through code, right, and kind of follow it. Yeah, uh, abstractly. And I have mentored a number of people from a local boot camp, right, who all exhibit the trait like of struggling to to be able to do that. And it, I mean, I get it. Like, that's an abstract thing. That's not like something that you pick up right away. But but I found it really odd that out of all like every single person that I mentored from this particular boot camp really struggled with that. So it made me kind of are you going to uh, name the boot camp? No. Are you going to have legal conclude, trouble here? It, it made <laughs> me conclude that I don't name it in, in Charlotte Doves either. But, but but if people privately ask me, I tell them. That's sort of my stance on it. But yeah, no, I, I mean, I conclude that they're not teaching that skill, right? Uh, people are not picking up that skill from that particular boot camp. This is the double-edged yeah. sword of both college education and boot camps. If you studied under Professor Wood at the Hogwarts School of uh, Ruby <laughs> Wizardry... Then, I'm, a Raven, I'm a Ravenclaw. Yeah, precisely. Then you're going to have no trouble getting a job because the local employers will have had someone from that boot camp and said, this guy's really great. It's going to give you a massive advantage. But if you uh, graduated from the not-so-salubrious you know, backstreet Ruby Magic Academy, then that's actually going to act as a negative because especially when you're up against candidates from uh, the proverbial Ruby Hogwarts, because they're going to say, well, you know, maybe this guy is not going to know the basics because he's done that boot camp. And by the very virtue of people going on to boot camps, they're probably not going to know which boot camp is good and which boot camp is bad because they are by definition new to the industry. So I think one of the things about the boot camp discussion that I think 
at least comes up for me when I have discussions with other people locally and things is I think this borders on our discussions around interviewing as well, because you, as you just pointed out, if you come from our illustrious Hogwarts school of whatever it was, Hogwarts I, school of Ruby wizardry. Yes. Yes. So somebody sing our company, fight song. Oh man. Somebody at company a already <laughs> has somebody at company a already has had, I came from, our Hogwarts school, right? And they have, they were taught certain language. They were taught certain concepts, in, in, you know, in relationship to one another. And if you come from our Ruby Backstreet School of Backstreet Ruby School of Magic, gosh, I don't even remember these names anymore, Luke. <laughs> uh, maybe you just think about this stuff a little bit differently because your teacher taught you a little bit differently, mm -hmm. right? The same problems that we have in any profession, I think. In any school, like if you if you were taught the concepts a little bit differently and you think about them a little bit differently and then you go talk to somebody else who has taught them a little bit, you have a language conflict right out of the gate. And while some people are very adept at navigating that, not everyone is and not everyone recognizes it. If your interviewer tends to tends to the more, how do I want to put it, like intolerant sort of side of, of people having different language, like if they're not good mm -hmm. at, at bridging that gap, you yeah. might have more difficulty in the interview. There are lots of things that can like play into that. And and I guess uh, one of the things that I think hits people from boot camps is popular boot camps do better and less popular boot camps don't do as well. And and I don't know how much that plays into it, but because there, there's probably more alumni out there, right? I guess is what where my my brain goes there. Yeah. Anyway, I I think that the interview matters. And if you if your teacher doesn't teach you the way that the person across the interview table from you thinks you should be taught, you can be at a disadvantage while you're trying to convince that person that you do know what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm a senior level person. And occasionally I run across people who are on the other side of the table who don't believe that I can code because I didn't use the right word for widget that they wanted me to use. And, and that happened at the beginning of the interview and the interview's over at that point, right? Yeah, it's it's interesting because I this is one area I get into with people about just talking about things like meritocracy and things like that, right? Is that ultimately there is a knowledge gap about the uh, candidate that sometimes is really hard to fill, right? And so sometimes it's language. Sometimes they understand how to put together a Rails app but don't understand any of the underlying fundamentals that are kind of important sometimes, <laughs> right? Or, you know, they, they just don't know how to express things well, or, I mean, you know, there are any number of reasons why. And, you know, and this, this is the gap on those kinds of things. But yeah, you know, the, by the same token, I feel like the boot camps need to prepare people for that. And I don't know that the colleges necessarily prepare you for that either. The difference is, is that the colleges tend to have enough credibility to get you in the door at least. And so, you know, cause they're accredited and whatever, right. You know, whether they're great or not. And so it, it becomes this, this interesting dilemma of, okay, you know, if, if I, so which choice do I make? Do I go spend four years at a university? Do I go do a boot camp? Do I do something that looks a little bit more like maybe a two year trade school? Do I go learn it myself? I'm and glad you brought up what trade are the trade-offs there, right? 
because there's this is this is like a really fundamental thing. So if I want to go and become a forklift operator, I know exactly how to do that. And yeah. there's like formal qualifications or an electrician, even, you know, then everyone knows how to become an electrician. There is no such route yeah. into software development in any well, language. And to there's that no, point, yeah. Just to add on, if you're going to be a forklift forklift operator, you have to be licensed. Right. If you oh, want to be true. an electrician and you want to be bonded in this state, you have to be a licensed electrician. Right. In other words, you have to demonstrate that you have the capability of not burning a building down when you when you hook up wires. Right. And so, you know, there's so, some real safety concerns there, but there's no such thing for developers. Right. There's no such. OK, you know, you certified. So you're in. We could we could do one. We could do a Ruby license. There we go. You are an official rogue. I yeah. don't know if that's really in the spirit of Ruby, though. Matt's is all, all about being nice. And the trouble with you know professional qualifications is you've got to fail a few people every now and then, or no one will take you seriously. <laughs> well, the thing is, is and, and maybe this is a discussion for another day, but yeah, then what qualifications would you put on it, right? If, if you're up against the wall, you need, desperately need another Ruby developer to come in yeah, what what qualifications are you going to put on that so that you can continue moving ahead, minimize your technical debt as you move forward and know that the work is going to get done, right? And not create more work later. There, there's, there's a conversation to be had there, but it's, you know, which route prepares you for that? I think a lot of it really depends on you. I think the conversation around like sort of like professional qualifications, right? Is, uh -huh. is one that's a lot harder to answer in the technical world because unlike most other professions that utilize that, right? So lawyers, doctors, right? Various engineers in non-technical fields do have some of that. But but it, at least in our field, it, technology, like what would you, what would you, like if we did, if you did one for Ruby, right? By the time that you put together the professional qualifications for Ruby, we'd already be on Ruby 4. You know, and then <laughs> and, and now your book is out of date by like five years. Like one of the problems with professional qualifications always lag behind the latest and greatest. And I think technology moves a little bit too fast for that. I think I do think, in my opinion, I do think that a professional organization is necessary in our programming community. I think one I think it has a lot of cool benefits, like probably reducing some of the sort of assholery around like me saying that you don't know what you're talking about or vice versa, right? Like, because then I can mm -hmm. pull out my professional certificate and be like, yes, I do. I, I think it can. Yeah. I just want that. the t-shirt. <laughs> Fair enough. I mean, it's, it's probably good in, in our profession. We can probably wear the t-shirt to the interview, right? Yeah. But, <laughs> I'm a certified Ruby asshole. Oh, not that one. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, no, it's the other shirt. It's it's the what blue or red. Anyway, no, but no, I, I mean, I think the professional organization is probably helpful, but I, I think it'll look different for us. Like, in, and I, it's obviously not a solved problem. If it were, I would be filthy rich, you know, because I'm just like talking mm -hmm. about this really awesome thing. But, but I, I do think it probably looks that way. But yeah, I don't, I don't think you can just spin it out of the box and be like, let's just do it like I E E E, right? Like, I don't. 
I don't know if I put too many E's on that or not. Keeps it keeps good changing, isn't it? It's the I E T or the I W E. Yeah, it's I triple E. But yeah, I think you had an extra on there. My bad, my bad. But I don't think that we can just you know pop out of the box and do it exactly like them because it's going to be different for us. But yeah, well, the other thing is is that I mean, even with other engineering practices like electrical engineering even though they're doing a lot of that design on computers in CAD programs, they're ultimately dealing with physical media, right? They're designing chips, they're designing, you know, they have to deal with the laws of physics and how electrons move through a system. Whereas with developers, a lot of times what we're dealing with is ideas and concepts and then how those get concretized into things like entities in our programs, which we call models and rails. But, you know, it's this entity. And then what does the entity care about? How does it behave? And things like that, right? And so it, it's, it's ideas all the way down to, you know, finally we get to a framework we have to work in that acts some like, like some, something like a physical medium, which is the internet, right? And so what we're fundamentally doing is different from a lot of those things. And it's also why technology moves so much faster than a lot of these other disciplines, right? Is because they, they they change when a new technology comes along that still works within the laws of physics, right? And ours change when we find a better way of thinking about the problem. And, and I, so... Dev.2 article next week. What was that? When, when I write my Dev.2 article next week. Yeah. You know, so you come up with a new way to think about things, you know, and everybody adapts to using components on front-end web apps kind of thing right which is kind of what reacted and everybody else went oh that solves all these other problems and so angular did it Vue did it right and so we we have these titanic shifts in the way that we do things and anyway so at the end of the day yeah it's it's hard to fundamentally know like what all of the different things that people need to know as far as technology goes but it also simplifies things in a lot of ways because what you wind up doing then is you wind up hiring people who you can train to have good habits, right? So that you're building future-proofed apps as much as possible, right? So it's, it, it's something that you can adapt to new ideas and technologies as they come along. And somebody who can pick them up, pick that kind of stuff up quickly. And if you can hire people for those skills and they have the, the basic capability of writing the code that you need, then, you know, you've almost solved the problem there. But the problem is, is that it's really hard to identify who those people are and identify the people who both have those skills and the discipline to maintain them. There's also a trade-off to hiring generalists, right? So, yes. So a generalist does not tend to perform as well in a given, you know, narrow band, right? Like you can get the specialist in, and and at least to what they do, they're going to perform, you know, higher or whatever. So finding the generalist that you can take from technology to technology is, is difficult. Also, there's a lot less generalists, I think, out there than than mm -hmm. or there's just not enough available for everyone to have. Yeah, but I'm not even advocating for generalists, right? I mean, even the updates from one Ruby version to the next or the Rails versions to the next. The nice thing about the those specialists is that any of the fundamentals that don't change 
are things that they can understand more deeply and can maintain value on for longer. So yeah, there, there's definitely a trade-off there. I would actually tend to opt more toward the specialists. But a lot of times you don't know what problems you're trying to solve. And so you actually need somebody who is good enough at identifying those problems and is enough of a generalist to be able to solve them because it could be anything that you're going to use to go for it. I mean, that's it's a problem with discussing this stuff in binary terms, right? Like, yeah, uh, is we're more more on a spectrum than we are in buckets, right? Yeah. Well, the other thing is, is even like you could have a complete programming generalist, you know, and so they know 18 programming languages and blah, 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 but they're not actually good enough at any of them to do any good to anybody, right? So we do specialize some, right? You, you have a deeper knowledge in Ruby or Rails or Sinatra or Rhoda or, you know, any of these because you need to be able to solve a wide breadth of problems within those technologies. So maybe you become a generalist within the space or maybe you just become really, really good at building financial systems within one of those spaces, right? And you specialize even more. And then what happens is you get, you move from job to job as they need those financial systems built and maintained. Suze Hinton has a great talk on this where she talks about a hammer where yeah, for a long time she her hammer was the, I think it was ActionScript, the Flash language, and she could do anything she wanted uh-huh. in ActionScript. And of course, when it died, she had to find a new one, so a new one's JavaScript. But the, the, I think the, her thesis behind it, and it's a great talk, but I'm not doing it justice here, is that you have a language that you're so comfortable in that if you do hit a challenge on the day job, you can do it in that language just to kind of work it out and then transpose it back to whatever Python or Go the company wants you to write it in. I I think that's a worthwhile technique, right? It feels like a workaround to me. So obviously my go-to language is Ruby to the extent that I kind of wrote a bash script this week to talk to an electricity meter and prototyped in Ruby. (laughs) I probably would have just left it there, but that's fine. Well, sometimes you've got a restrictive environment or someone's going to come into a project who maybe doesn't have good Ruby skills. So you have to kind of, you know, account for your team members, don't you? Which is another thing, perhaps they don't teach very well on boot camps, is how to cooperate with your teammates. So this is the one of the um, things I hit with junior developers is not so much their technical skills, but the less technical still of how to kind of cooperate with uh, developers, be that in, and I'm not talking about necessarily soft skills, I'm talking about hard skills like um, Git usage, you know, what is and isn't acceptable in a project management context, you know, mm-hmm. how do you write an email without enraging half the dev team? This is, these are all kind of very uh, valuable skills to have. Yeah. And definitely perhaps- don't think that's singular to bootcamp people though. Well, I think no, it's, I think, uh, yeah, but I mean, if you're if you're learning to be like a bricklayer, they'll tell they'll teach you, you know, how do you not annoy everyone the first day in the job? You know, you certain things you have to do. You have to turn up wearing a hard hat and your safety steel cap boots, and uh, there's a, an equivalent list in software development, which rules which everyone knows, but you only kind of find out the hard way because you turn up to a real software project, start banging everything into master branch, and gets upset. Yeah, that's an issue, though, that I ran into going to the university, right? Is that, you know, came out of the university, 
of course, I had the benefit of working on an IT team while I attended the university. And so I had some of those kind of cultural sensibilities, but still had to learn some of the technical ins and outs, right? And so, yeah, I committed a master a few too many times and somebody said, dude, right? That's well, it's bad. even worse now with continuous, you know, you know, the old CI systems. Yeah. And what's the but, other one? CD. You know, suddenly yeah. your your code's like in production. Yep. So essentially, yeah, I mean, what you're talking about is 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 a skill that they, in my opinion, don't teach well anywhere, right? And it's something you kind of pick up when you go get that first job and they, they say, okay, this is how we work. I think that's partly because Git is a tool, right? Not a system. And the distinction here is that there's no correct way to use Git. There are strategies, right, in Git that work better in certain cases and work don't work as well in other cases. And so people say, okay, well, this is our, this is how we're going to develop, and this is how we're going to use Git to make that happen, right? And so maybe you came out learning Git, and you know the person that you learned from they love rebasing. So they taught you rebaser, which rebase strategy is like the kind of more popular one right now, right? Or maybe you learned merge and you went to somebody where, or went to a place where they used the opposite strategy. And then suddenly you were, everyone was stomping over everyone, right? Or maybe you use Git flow in one place and you go to a new place and they, they use continuous integration, right? Like these, those are, those are just strategies for solving your problem. They aren't right or wrong. They're, they have pros and cons and, you your team picked them for some reason whether that was a good reason or just because somebody you know you know put their finger in the wind whatever but but they picked them and now now you're you're following it or whatever but i don't know i just i feel like the ability to like follow what your team is doing is is just like i don't know it's like somebody said get hygiene on some podcast somewhere a long time ago and i don't like that that since i don't like it it sounds like code smells. No, it's like brushing I, I brush your teeth. my I brush my Git teeth with my Git brush. <laughs> it's there are things that you have to do in order to like sort of take care and maintain your code base, right? And doing those things, you have to learn how to do that. I, I tell you why. I, I want to kind of take this up a level because what I think we're really talking about here are sort of the people level skills, right? And so you know, can you communicate well with people? Are you able to pick up on the nuances of culture or nuances of process or nuances of some of these things, right? And those are hard to teach, especially if you only have a few months to to teach somebody this and you're trying to get them up to speed on technology anyway. And, you know, the university environment doesn't foster this either because you're essentially doing the same thing. You're just doing it one class at a time. And so you're going through a whole bunch of mini boot camps that have the same problem. You know, self-teaching. I mean, if you get together in a group and you collaborate on some of your learning, you might pick up some of this. But unless you have a, you know, a, an experienced person there kind of guiding things toward what at least an acceptable human process is, for a dev team, you're going to miss a lot of that too. And so, and, and I don't know if there's really an answer for this other than go work on a team and, you know, pick up on these are the things that work well and these are the dysfunctions that we had. And then go to a different team and say, okay, we don't have those dysfunctions. We have these other ones. 
right? Because because that's legitimately how I've picked it up. Is I went from team to team, and it was okay. Working on this team was great. I got this level of mentorship, and at the same time, you know, my mentor was busy a lot of the time or didn't have the answer because he was more of a Java expert, so he could figure out faster than me. But he wasn't always there. You know, moved to the next place, and well, man, my boss, you know, he's he's actively he's trying to help, but he's actively hindering our process. He's actively hindering us getting stuff done right? Cowboy coding and all this stuff, right? And then I go to the next place. And, you know, they do things a little bit differently. And we kind of adapt to that. And I don't know if you can learn it any other way. Internships, I think are super, super important. Like I do we do those as much though? No, we don't. Like, I, I think the numbers are pretty clear that they've been going down, like over the course of years or whatever. Yeah, it used um, to be really common really popular in the uk certainly people of my generation kind of late 30s did a a coding internship in the 90s and now i literally know of no one below the age of 25 that's done that yeah i set up an internship program or you know like was like super i wasn't the only person involved but super heavily involved in in setting up that in a previous place and i mean that to me yeah you can get I think it's beneficial to the company if you want to get kind of people that are newer into the into your company, right? They're going to be a little bit mm-hmm. cheaper for a while. If you treat them right, they'll stick around. You know, but for the most part, you know, some people will just leave. That's just reality, but I think I don't know. I think it's a good trade-off, but we just don't do it. Companies don't really want to take the risk of teaching people and and our, I mean, I don't think that our education, I mean, like you pointed out, Chuck, I don't think our education system can can take on some, like this portion of the education, right? Right. Teaching people how to work with other people, whatever that is. Yep. Have you ever wondered if you could be offering a faster, less buggy experience for your customers? I mean, let's face it. The only way you're going to know that is by actually running it on production. So go figure it out, right? You run it on production, but you need something plugged in so that you can find out where those issues are, where it's slowing down, where it's having bugs. You just, you need something like that there. And Raygun is awesome at this. They they just added the performance monitoring, which is really slick and it works like a breeze. I, I just, I love it. I love it. It's like, it's like you get the ray gun and you zap the bugs. It's anyway, definitely go check it out. It's going to save you a ton of time, a ton of money, a ton of sanity. I mean, let's face it. Grepping through logs is no fun. And having people not able to tell you that it's too slow because they got sidetracked into Twitter is also not fun. So go check out ray gun. They are definitely going to help you out. There are thousands of customer-centric, customer-focused software companies who use Raygun every day to deliver great experiences for their customers. And if you go to Raygun and use our link, you can get a 14-day free trial. So you can go check that out at rubyrogues.com slash Raygun. How much do boot camps cost in the USA these days? 10K-ish average, maybe? uh, I, I don't know. I mean, I think it depends on the length of the boot camp. I think it also depends on what they provide. So I've seen some boot camps, right, where it's like three months and it's like, you know, six grand or eight grand. And then I've seen others that are three months and they're like $16,000, right? And the reason is, is because they're, 
they're located, you know, somewhere that's a little more central to to town, to commuter hubs and things like that. So the real estate costs more. And then, you know, they they tend to spend a little bit more money on some of the resources that they provide to you and to their instructors. And what's funny to me is that I've seen some $6,000 ones that seem to really just get it and they nail it. And I've seen some $16,000 ones that I wouldn't send somebody that I never wanted to code a day in their life to because they're just, you know, they're in it and they're all about collecting the money. And I, I don't feel like they do a good job prepping people for their careers. And so, yeah, I mean, it varies pretty widely. I've seen some six month programs that cost north of $20,000. Those tend to be pretty good. But the reason is, is because they know they have to deliver to get a new crop of people in. If they get a black eye, they're done because people won't spend the money for it. You know, and, and they're also kind of flirting with now being on the level of a junior college or something like that where people are actually looking at it as an opportunity for a real education instead of a fast track into software development. And you also have to come up, if you're getting into the bootcamp, right? If you're the student, you also have to commit to a much higher level of a thing. So your commitment to success has to be higher in the first place. And I think that you're more likely to have successful people that way too. Yep. You're just filtering for people that are more committed. That's a better way of saying that. Yeah, that's fair. And I've seen some of the boot camps. In fact, some of the boot camps that really tend to succeed. Yeah, you have to apply. They'll interview you and they'll tell you if they don't think they can deliver for you. And a lot of it really does come down to your level of commitment, your personal habits, you know, what you're willing to put into it. And if you're not willing to put into it, they're not willing to take you because they don't feel like they can deliver. And a lot of times that's more to do with their reputation than your education. But the outcome is mostly the same. And so I don't, I can't condemn them for that, right? Because they want to, they want to be out there in the community as a place that delivers. There's probably a negative side to that, right? I mean, they're evaluating. There, there is, sure. Are probably filtering out people who are perfectly good candidates. Yeah. But, but yeah, also, I see your point too. Yeah. Well, and if they have enough people applying, then they, you know, they can definitely pick and choose the people that they can provide the most or the best outcomes for, or at least that they think they can. But yeah, so overall, what's your advice then for people who want to come into the programming field? Are boot camps a viable option for them? I always tell people, so it, when people ask me this question, my, my question isn't intended to be wishy-washy, but I, I'm always just like, it really kind of depends on you. Like, how, how badly do you want to be a developer? For me, for me I don't think that the boot camp is all that integral into your path. I think it, boot camp is just a way of shoving a bunch of information into that three months or whatever it is for you. If you are committed to making the switch, the boot camp can be a tool for you. And I think you have to use it that way. It's not the solution. It's getting into programming right now is a lot of work and it's all on your back. All the risk is on your back. All you know, You're going to be the person that has to put together 20 different uh, resumes plus cover letters for you know the companies that you're shotgunning out to you're the one that ha- has to go attend all of these meetups and possibly write blog articles like all of these extra things the boot camp's not going to do mm-hmm. that for you 
but you have to learn all the things that the boot camps the boot camp is teaching so you can look at the boot camp possibly as being sort of like maybe that's the teacher portion of of what you need to do to become a developer you need some way to learn that stuff you also have to spend a ton of time doing all the legwork to get past all the barriers to entry that we that we just have in place right now i don't think it's right but but i think that if you want to be a developer today this is this is what it takes and understanding that reality i think is sort of i don't know i tend to be on the realistic side of things when i tell people so that's why i say that's why mm-hmm. i put things this way i don't think that boot camps are bad or evil but i don't think that boot camps like you're handing them ten thousand dollars or whatever it is to teach you some stuff and there's going to be a ton of holes in it and you have to fill in those gaps at the end of the day i agree with a lot of that luke what, what, what's your take i i disagree i disagree and not not just for um podcasting reasons i know very few people who've got into software development and then got out it tends to be a kind of profession where you can have a really great career and it tends to kind of go get better as you go along and i don't think anyone suddenly is um boot camps in the as a kind of get a great job in code after you've done boot camp it's more a kind of get a job than get a better job no one's expecting to have any more job for life out of college are they you know you're going to get a job but you're going to have the potential to get better jobs in the future so i think that really the world needs more boot camps not less because we need more devs not less devs mm-hmm. from a software developer's perspective obviously that's not great because every new dev is competition but putting my small business business owner's hat on you know desperately need more people who can code <laughs> yeah no it's true and i think i think coding is a massive force for good in the world i know i know people personally who've got out of very desperate situations by getting into it and have literally changed it turned their life around you know it's been uh, transformative to their lives and their children's lives so i think the boot camps are fundamentally doing good whether that's the best way to do it everyone clearly not if you've got to get up and go as john said you can just get up and go and do it there is no need for boot camps the only real question is do they help and do you get value for money and i think i think a lot of people do a lot of people do need a helping hand you know to make a change in their lives and that's really what it's about it's interesting because you know but between the two of you so the part of what john said that i definitely agree with is the if you're committed to getting into into programming, then you're going to do it right. And whether it's through a boot camp or uh, you know going to a university or a four year school or you know going out and self learning, yeah, I, I think the people who are really driven are going to figure it out one way or the other. Generally, the way that I see it is that, and I also agree with you, Luke, in the in the sense that we need more programmers. We're creating more work for programmers by orders of magnitude than we are creating then we're creating programmers who can actually do that work so that also comes into play here i guess my thing is is that and i've talked to a number of people too where they go get the four-year degree because it's kind of expected right there's some cultural level of expectation right i mean i grew up my mom kept telling me that i was going to go to college right and and that that was just an expectation for for us for me and my nine siblings, 
was that we were all going to go to college. And funny enough, we all did, right? But dang, I mean, where was the boot camp when I was around? I mean, I didn't know I wanted to be a programmer when I went in. So there, there is that. But, you know, if I had, I would, you know, today, I'd totally advise somebody to at least consider it. Now, there are a few trade-offs, I think, that matter here. So if you're completely independent-driven, you know, you are capable of delivering on stuff all on your own, yeah, go self-learn this stuff. Go make some friends. Get them to get you a job where they're working. You're in, right? And it can take less time. It'll definitely take less money than going through a boot camp, right? And so that that's kind of where I agree with some of what John said. But if you need some structure, but you don't need the the all the structure that the university gives you, then go to boot camp, right? So if if you need somebody to kind of hold your hand and walk you through it, you're you're happy getting paid a little bit less than the university grads on your first job and and you you love this stuff and you're willing to put in the extra effort that goes along with, you know, outside of boot camp, right? Right. So writing the blog posts, going to the users groups, you know, maybe being on a podcast or running your own podcast or, you know, any of those things. If you're willing to do that work, then yeah, you know, boot camp. Good. You know, you get the handholding where you need it and you go and you do the work where you don't. And then if you just need a system, right? You just need a system where you can just show up and go through the system. And at the end of the system, you get a job, then go to the university, right? I feel like, though, that if you can go to the boot camp, the trade-off is is that the university is like a four-year program. Or even if you go to the junior college or whatever, it's a two-year program, right? And the boot camp's a six-month program. So if you get in and you do the work and you get that stuff done, by the time the two-year people get out, you've got a year plus of experience that they don't, right? On the job, which matters, right? Now, if you're talking 10 plus years or 20 plus years in the programming community, there's not nearly as much difference. It doesn't make nearly as much difference. But if I'm hiring junior developers and I can hire somebody with a year's experience or two years experience, I mean, I'm going to talk to them, right? Because I want to make sure that the skill levels are, you know, line up with what my expectations are for people like that. But all things being equal, I'm probably going to pick up the person that has two years experience because I think they're going to fit in better with the way that developers generally work, right? And as long as they have two years worth of skill compared to the person with one year's worth of skill, right, then it's it's totally worth it to hire them. And so you get further ahead by shortcutting the amount of time it takes you to get in, Right. And so if you're, if you're self-driven and blah, 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 right, I think you can get to proficiency in shorter than three months if you really work at it and are self-driven. And so, again, you can skip the boot camp line, especially if you're willing to do the work connecting with people. They can, they can help you figure out what you need to learn and help you get a job. And so at the end of the day, I think it really just depends on who you are, how you operate, and how hard you're willing to work. And I also recognize that there are some life circumstances that make some of these approaches hard, right? So, you know, spending 20 hours a day learning to code is probably harder if you have five kids and, you know, you have to pay the mortgage and blah, 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 right? Because you, you have to work, you have to pay the bills, right? Whereas if you're a younger person, you're in high school or something, you just go home and learn to code when you're not at school, right? Or if you've just graduated from 
from high school, same deal, right? You know, you're not in college, you're not, you don't have any other demands on your time. Your mom's going to let you live on the couch and eat her pizza. So you're good, right? But yeah, other than that, I mean, it really just depends on how, how you can approach this to make it happen and how self-driven you are. How has the, uh, the pandemic affected these boot camps? Because these are not generally remote things, are they? That's, that's really interesting. I have a few friends that run boot camps here. So I know people who run Dev Mountain. I know them. And I know people who run Bottega, which is also here. And they, yeah, they've gone completely online. And then I know a few students in some of the boot camps. And it's, it's kind of the same thing, right? For some people, it's really worked out well you know, tend to be the more independent folks, right, that, that are able to self-direct or at least stay focused when they're being lectured to and taught and are willing to ask for help. I think that just became more important to boot campers. I was reading something about the um, tech conferences, obviously, uh, last year, and probably for most of this year have gone online only. And I was reading a piece by some organizers saying, you know, how this affected your academic conferences and this this was this was a group who were organizing more than one conference yeah this is kind of a group and they said that financially it's been an enormous success because previously you know you would have to fly to barbados to attend this event for x days and as well as paying the fee and now anyone can do it online so their kind of enrollment's gone through the roof but they felt like the value people were getting from attending that virtually was was a fraction of the value that people would have got in previous years. So there was a kind of element of guilt that they were making more money, but feeling like they provided less um, content. So I would say another benefit of the boot camp in more normal years would have been that you're actually physically mixing with people you know you're kind of meeting people who are going to help you get into this industry in a way that you wouldn't if you're sitting at home for 20 hours on the what's it dev 2 but that that advantage is very much flattened out this year yeah it makes sense yeah and conferences are an interesting animal too though in the sense that a lot of the value you, you derive from the conference is actually the conversations you have in the hallway you know, a lot of those other things. And I think there's some value you get from being in a cohort and rubbing shoulders with the same group of people every day at the boot camps. But I don't know. And and this is a legitimate, I don't know. I'm. It's not an, I don't know, as in, I doubt that it's the case that. I really honestly don't know how critical that particular piece is to the boot camp experience and what you get out of it. But I know that that's a critical piece of what you get out of conferences. Yes. I'd literally pay $600 so that I can feel good after RailsConf every year. Because I could just go watch all the videos online afterwards if I wanted to. So it's not, yeah. you know, if I'm honest, right? If all I was doing was there to learn, like, I could get it for free. Yep. I'm not, I'm, I'm paying it because it, it re-energizes me every year. Yep. Yeah, you're paying for that immersive experience. I mean, yeah, yes, all the, this, yeah, whatever, the hallway track and all that stuff. That That yep. is valuable. But I, I particularly put $600 value on the feel-good experience. Cool. Hey, folks, if you love this podcast and would like to support the show, or if you wish you could listen without the sponsorship messages, then you're in luck. We're setting up new premium podcast feeds where you can get all of the episodes released after Christmas 2020 without the ads. 
Signing up will help us pay for editing and production, and you can go sign up at devchat.tv slash premium. Well, I've got a call coming up, so i got to jump off. Do we want to go to picks? Yes. Who wants to go first? I can lead off. It's all good. All right. So do it. For my first pick, and I, I have to find a link for this because I uh, just didn't prepare for today. But luckily, I have the bottle handy. I have. I was picking up a gift for somebody, and I was like, I'm going to go look at the Scotch Isle or whatever. And I did. And uh, I've been waiting for a Nikka whiskey. Uh, Nikka is a, a Japanese whiskey that's like impossible to get in the U.S. if you're like not on the West Coast. Uh, or it has been for many years. And they, anyway, I managed to pick up a Nikka Yoichi and it's totally worth it. I'm totally glad that I did. It's been freaking awesome. It is, it is very, it has a lot of the character of other Japanese whiskeys and then it's kind of, you know, flowery and, you know, lighter compared to like other high quality whiskeys. But uh, I don't know. That's my, I'm sorry that I'm not like whiskey connoisseur over here, but, <laughs> but it's awesome. And it's, Totally one of my best whiskeys on my shelf. So despite not even having an age statement, it's pretty awesome. You know, it's funny that you're saying this and you're, you're like, I'm not a whiskey expert. And I honestly, I've never drunk a drop of alcohol in my whole life. <laughs> and I'm imagining what the flowery sense is in it and how that changes the the nature of it without ha- you having ever drunk any whiskey in my whole life. So I am very glad that I can provide a good experience to you in describing this alcohol to you. Uh, yeah, my whiskey experience <laughs> is heightened because of you, John. I am. I certainly want to make zero claims of being <laughs> whatever the whatever the uh, whiskey equivalent of a sommelier is. I'm definitely not that. So yeah, that's that actually is my major pick. Though I do have a webcam now, so maybe I should pick that. I yeah. Now that webcams are available again uh to buy and are no longer like five hundred dollars a piece i bought i bought yep i think it was like a c920x or something like that i have to look it up yep is a c920x that's what i bought it's great i can move it around and i don't know i guess that's important I, i i need to adjust it occasionally and it seems to work fine in my room i don't have to turn on my super bright white light in order for people to see me it's great awesome by the way, I did a Google search, and the term for a sommelier for whiskey is a whiskey sommelier. So there Fair you enough. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> you got it right. That's what Google says anyway. Go ahead, Luke. What are your picks? All right. So I'm going to pick the awesome print gem. I had a rant about this earlier, but I am going to pick it. The reason I'm going to pick it was it's the easiest way of getting color highlighted output from a custom tool in Ruby. So if you're working on something outside of your kind of normal Rails stack and you've got a business-specific tool and you want syntax highlighting to kind of help the data flowing by, you know, help you pick out errors, write your tests, Awesome Print will do this without any extra config. If you just use Pretty Print, it's not going to highlight unless you're in an interactive terminal and I can't work out to get it to kind of highlight, so pull an Awesome Print. The only caveat is it's not been updated for Ruby 2.7, so it will spew out vast amounts of warnings about the proc.new syntax unless you either monkey patch it or hack it. But there's plenty of guidance on the repo. So there we go. Awesome print for very low effort color highlighting of structures. The second pick, a bit of a weird pick, 
is Apache Cloud Stack. And this is an alternative to kind of OpenStack or even to Kubernetes for if you've got, say, a shelf full of machines and you want to start running your own cloud on it, this is a complete cloud computing environment. So the idea is that once you've got it working, you've got a web interface and you can literally click yourself a server without having to pay every month for it in, you know, GCP or Amazon. So it's like a kind of free EC2. They've updated the UI. If you put in the very latest version, it's got a kind of Vue-based UI that looks nice. They're starting to move off CentOS because CentOS got killed, as you know, by IBM. I love you, IBM. <laughs> what a what a wonderful company they are. Please sponsor our podcast. Uh, they're really moving everyone into the future. The uh, well, you know, it's a, it's one way of speeding up development is to kill the long term stability release. So uh, yeah, Apache Cloud Stack. It's not uh... just because a lot of the developers based in Britain. It's not that at all. It's a really interesting project. If you've got a lot of spare machines if you spend a lot of money on these online services you know why can't i just you know set up something in my company so that people can just try stuff out without having to spend god knows what on platforms actually cloud stack give it a look i'll check it out all right i've got a few picks of my own so the first one is and you might have heard an ad on this show actually for it but i'm working on and it's funny because this whole conversation right I'm working on actually pulling together a mastermind for developers who want to take their careers to the next level. And I'm really focused on folks that it's not for newbies. Let's just put it that way. So if you're kind of stuck at mid to senior level and you're going, okay, where do I go from here? That's what I'm building, right? And so we'll talk about what kind of a career you want, what kind of things you can do to get there. And a lot of it's going to focus around once you know what you want, how to learn the skills, how to stay current. And we're going to have you start a podcast so that people can actually see what you know and so that you can build enough of a reputation to where, you know, if you want to be one of those influencers or speakers or whatever, you can be. Or if you just want that job at that company, I can't tell you how many times I've gotten that job at that company just by having a podcast, right? The last job interview I went to we literally sat around and BSed for a half hour after the first two minutes of, hey, I really like Ruby Rogues. Oh, great. Do you want to work here? Sure. So it, it really does work. But what I'm finding is, is that, yeah, you know, you, you do have to have the skills and, and be able to demonstrate that you know them. And then, yeah, the podcast is a terrific way to, to show people that you are good at what you say you're good at. So... It's also a terrific opportunity to learn. It's a great way to stay current. I mean, there's so many benefits I've gotten from it. So anyway, I'm going to shout out about that. You can find it at devchat.tv slash next level. And then the other pick that I have, I've been listening to these books for months now. And I, I read them when I was in high school. And then, of course, after high school, because he was still writing them. And then the author died. And so another author picked up the series and finished it. It's called The Wheel of Time. And uh, yeah, so Robert Jordan passed away and Brandon Sanderson wrote the last three books of the series. They are so good. And I've, I've really been enjoying going back through them. I'm on the next to last book. I guess I guess there's a word for that penultimate. I'm on the penultimate book in the Wheel of Time series and I've, I've been enjoying them. So I'm going to pick that. 
And then finally, I've been listening to another book. So when I go to the gym, I tend to listen to a nonfiction book. And I picked up The Man with a Thousand Faces. And it's a book about, they kind of go into the mythology and religious texts through history, right? And they basically pick out a lot of the common threads and common types of stories that are told in in all of these different historical works. And what's interesting is, is it's like, look, these are narratives that we all recognize, right? These are, these are storylines that they still use them to like make movies and write books today, right? And so a lot of times you'll go to a movie and the plot seems very familiar, even though some of the elements are not. And the reason is, is because they're following one of these formulas. And so really been enjoying that and really been thinking about how to apply storytelling to podcasting. So that's The Man with a Thousand Faces by Joseph Campbell. And yeah, those those are my picks. I, I think Wheel of Time's good too. I think I think Robert Jordan lost himself a little bit after book seven. I think it's book seven, whatever. Anyway, I don't want to spoil anything. But then but Brandon Sanderson is a ridiculously phenomenal author. And I thought he did a great job like finishing it up. I don't know yeah, how you take I, an epic story and finish it. That seems really hard to me. And wow. Game of it, Thrones. <laughs> Game of Thrones. Yeah, but that's he, he George R. R. Martin that. for the whole thing. Um, Martin's a hack. The, Martin's a hack. He can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> the, the thing that's interesting about that, though, was that Robert Jordan, he was trying to tell the story. Brandis Anderson was also trying to tell the story, but he had a mandate to finish the series. And so, True. And so I think he packed in what he had to pack in but still telling the story, if that makes sense. I always felt like Robert Jordan could have finished the series like like book seven. I always felt like the series was kind of done. And then he sort of like was like, oh, oh, I forgot about this part. And like and then he and that's why I always say, like, I think he's like lost because I feel like the yeah. story is like meandering at that point. Yeah. The books get harder to read. They're they do. Good. They're still good. Yeah. But it, like I said. At the end, Brandon was just trying to fill in all the holes, tell a good story, and you know wrap up the series for the fans of the series. Funny enough, one of my best friends from high school actually works for Brandon Sanderson in their warehouse. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but That's he actually cool. worked things out to give me a tour of Cosmere House, which is where Brandon, like he does his live streams from there. It's where all of their swag is from there. I got a couple of like leather bound copies of Mistborn books and stuff just for showing up. I mean, they're damaged. That's why I got them for free. I got a handful <laughs> of paperbacks. But I mean, and it was just fun, right? It was fun to kind of see, okay, you know, these are the elements of, you know, kind of this world that Brandon created that then artists have contributed to and fans have contributed to. And and so it's kind of created this this thing outside of the the Cosmere, which is this universe that he works in that is really really interesting and it was it was a ton of fun I- incidentally cosmere house is right next to brandon's house house and so i actually know where brandon sanderson lives now i would never go over there and like you know i love your stuff man but yeah but yeah it was it was really fun so i've i've been enjoying that i'm actually going to be doing stormlight archives after this cuz i still need to read rhythm of war and people are trying their best not to spoil it for me so yeah, I haven't read everything I've read in Saren's Sense, but everything I have read so far is I would I would like recommend it every time. Yeah, I've read almost everything that he's written. It's just it's it's phenomenal stuff. So anyway, sweet. Yeah. All right, nerded out about books. Check.
<laughs> all bad. right, folks. No, it's all good. Let's go ahead and wrap up, though. And until next time, Max out. Take care, everybody. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.